Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. For in Adam the world fell, and man was cast out of the garden of God's fellowship forever. But God gave humanity a promise, a promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the true seed of the woman who would be bruised for our transgressions. Yet in being bruised, he would crush the head of that lying serpent. There on the cross, lifted up on the mount of skulls with a nail through his heel, our Redeemer was exalted over his enemies in a victory promised in Genesis chapter 3. There at the cross, our sins were taken away and our access into God's fellowship was again granted. Having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Hallelujah, amen, and amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Verses 9 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. We'll turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk to th- of them when you sit in their house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
Then it shall come about when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." You shall fear fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of Yahweh your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You, shall, you should dil- diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as Yahweh has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and statutes and judgments mean which Yahweh our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, Yahweh showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. So Yahweh commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before Yahweh our God, just as he commanded us. Please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been at war a long time in Afghanistan. Long enough so that at least two of the individuals who died in the attack a couple of days ago were conceived at the beginning of the war and went to fight as 18 and 20 year olds at the end of the war. Every child born of a Christian family 
is conceived in a war. And so far, every child conceived in the war has died. It's likely to be that way sometime into the future. We bear children to fight. Now, that may not be the way you think, but that's the way the Bible thinks. And uh, we are living in a time when uh, the Christian church is not really into the fight. The Christian church is into the good life. We're not rearing our children to think they're warriors for Christ. I'm speaking just broadly now about the evangelical church. Instead, we are producing churches that give us topical sermons on how to have a happy life, a happy marriage, how to manage your money, all those good things, which are all fine and dandy. But not topics like how to fight for Christ. Proverbs 27.8 says this, like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his place. We uh, live in a new cultural time whereby the culture at large thinks of male and female. Well, people are people. If you could get inside each person, you would discover that we're all the same. We just happen to ha inhabit a certain kind of body. But we're all really the same. And so what we've decided now in our culture is we might want to inhabit a different kind of body. We're not satisfied with the body we do inhabit. We want a different kind of body. We want to cross over to the other gender, for example. We've wandered from our place. And like a bird that flies from its nest, it finds itself in danger. And the culture is in danger, and the church is in danger. And we need to realize the times we live in, this is all coming uh, to fruition in the woke movement. We need to realize the times we're living in and think about ourselves as God's families. You'll recall that God has created three institutions. The institution of the family, the institution of the church, and the institution of the state. The institution of the family is the basic building block. And how we, how we live and act as families have much more to do with the warfare, the spiritual warfare that's going on than we actually realize. We're going to look at a little bit of that today. And then I think next Sunday we'll return to Chronicles. <clears throat> There's a text in the Bible. Well, it's a long text. It's 1 Corinthians. 
You might want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Now, of course, you, you know, I'm sure you know, these are fighting verses out there in the lost culture. It is just what woke hates because it speaks of oppression. Women made for men, men will take advantage and oppress them. I'm sure, I hope you realize, this verse, these verses, are becoming a problem within the evangelical church. So that we have decided texts like this are cultural and we have grown beyond them now. And in the evangelical circles, we are beginning to, to accept that men and women are basically just alike. There aren't differences between them. And men and women can have the same function, the same roles, the same duties, the same everything. This is what's happening in the evangelical church. This is how the enemy has gained the upper hand. Actually, 1 Corinthians 11, we talk about it in terms of head coverings, is, is a passage we're going to look at, but not for the purpose of head coverings, for the purpose of thinking about how husband, wife, family lives together so that we can make an assault on the enemy, an assault that is made not because we do something, other than live like God has called us to live so that people look at us, watch us. If we live out what God wants us to live out, which is clear from Genesis to the end of Revelation, we, we will be ridiculed, mocked, sneered at, and we will eventually be oppressed because Living righteously like that speaks about people's sin who are watching us, and they will not like it. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 comes in this larger context, and I'm sure you know this as well. So in 1 Corinthians, you have three sections that are apparently questions that the Corinthians brought to the Apostle Paul. So in chapter 7, now concerning the things you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So chapter 7 is devoted to their inquiries about marriage. Chapter 8, now concerning food sacrificed to idols. Then again in chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. 
So you can see if the book is organized this way from chapter seven onward, then the second section, food offered to idols, is the section that goes all the way through chapter 11. We talk about the Lord's Supper, that's the section it's in. Then you start a new section, now concerning spiritual gifts, that go all the way through chapter 14, and then Paul is reaching the climax of what he has to say when he talks about the gospel that he delivered to them. When you think about chapters 8 and following, and then you come down to chapter 11, and uh, i got to turn there again. I already moved away from it. Chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So you follow Paul's argument in chapters seven, excuse me, chapter eight and following. In chapter eight, the issue of food offered to idols comes up. And some people don't understand that an idol is nothing. Well, Paul tells us there are demons behind them. So the food is edible, there's nothing wrong with it. But everybody doesn't have that knowledge and so you don't wanna make somebody stumble. So you set aside your right for the welfare of someone's faith. Chapter nine, Paul applies that principle to himself, where he talks about the kinds of rights he has. He has the right to take a believing wife along with him. He doesn't have one. He has the right to make his living from the gospel, but he doesn't do that. And the reason he doesn't do it is so that he can offer the gospel for free so that people will be saved. And when you come down to the end of the chapter, Paul talks about the way he runs, the way he boxes, the way he fights in just such a manner, watching over himself lest he be disqualified. And let, he's a dokimos man. He's a proven man. He's afraid, he's concerned that he might become a dokimos, a disqualified man. And in chapter 10, he explains why. So chapter 10 starts out four. This is all related to food offered to idols. Why you would give up your rights? Because Israel came out of Egypt and the whole nation, everybody in the nation was baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were all like this one but then they fell into idolatry. They fell into immorality. And God was not well pleased with them. And a whole generation died in the wilderness. And Paul tells us this was written as an, a, an example for us. Take heed lest you fall. He's concerned about that. Chapter 10 goes on to speak about how we're one because of the blood and the body of Christ. When we eat the bread, we, we recognize we're one body. We eat the same food, we're one. And then he goes on to talk about how Israel is one in their sacrifices. And then about idols being sacrificed too, and that's where he mentions that, oh yeah, an idol is nothing, but what's behind it is demons, and you cannot be a partaker of the Lord's table 
and a partaker of the demon's table. And the rest of chapter 10 is devoted then to why you would give up your rights for the sake of someone else. And Paul says, I do all that I do to glorify God. And I don't want to give offense to Jew or Gentile or to the church that more might be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's talking about living a sacrificial life. Living the sacrificial life. So then, look at chapter 11, verse 1 again. Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So now he's got a section where he's going to praise them because they're doing something he wants them to be doing. Then when you come to verse 17, he's going to say, in this I do not praise you. And when by the time you get down to the end of chapter 11, there's a concern. The Lord has visited the Corinthian church in judgment when people improperly ate from the Lord's table. Now, mind you, the improperness was not because they had unconfessed sin. That has nothing to do with it. Surely, one is supposed to confess their sin when you come to church. We just did. But that's not why. It's because of a lack of care for brothers and sisters. But I just want you to see these two, I praise you and I don't praise you, follow on this, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And we're not going to look at the Lord's table. We are going to look at head coverings, well, the idea of head coverings, to say, okay, now what does this have to do with being imitators of Christ? I, uh, you notice for the past few weeks, you've seen your bulletins from the cradle to the crib, from the cross to the crown. I'm sure you've wondered why in the world is that title there? And the title's there because you take Old Testament Psalms like Psalm 8 and other passages, you realize that the family as a whole is a warrior from, for Christ. So in Psalm 8, God silences his adversaries. How? By gospel-toting missionaries? No. By infants. By infants. What is our country wanting? Well, they want pleasure. They want to do what they want to do. And they don't mind killing 1.5 million babies a year to get what they want because babies are an inconvenience. But to Christians, babies are an added arrow in the quiver to stand up against the enemy. Not just when they're older, but from the very time they're born. They silence the enemy. Why? Because the enemy can watch a family and see how that family works and see that that family has something they don't have. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Now I praise you because you remember me in uh, everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered to you. Now the word tradition, that's just, uh, just in the numeric standard, uh, an absolutely atrocious translation. It's not the word tradition. It's the same word as delivered. It's the noun form. The delivering I delivered to you. Tradition to us speaks of, well, you know, something that you can set aside. This is not something you can set aside. So what Paul has to say in chapter 11 is something he delivered, just like he delivered the gospel in chapter 15, just like he delivered what he received from the Lord about the Lord's Supper at the end of chapter 11. These things don't go away. So chapter 11 is how a husband and a wife worship together. That's what it's about. Now, it's in the context, of course, of a church meeting where there is praying and prophesying. So he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while he is praying or prophesying shames his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not, uh, does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off on her, on her head, or, or shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man, for indeed Man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man, the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, 
it is a, a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. So just a couple of things I want to point out. First of all, notice when you get to the end, Paul says this is the practice of every church. There aren't any exceptions. So if you want to be contentious, you're out there on your own. The second thing I want to point out is Paul bases his argument on nature. This is something that obviously is disputed by people. Just like people dispute the fact that they come in a male body, so nature teaches them they're male, they say no to that. No, I have a male body, but I'm really female. It's somewhat like the Catholic Church, who bless the bread and the wine, and to you it looks like bread and it looks like wine, but they say, no, those are only the accidents. The accidents. It's really blood and flesh. That's what people are saying. Oh, no, no, okay, yeah, I have a, a body that looks like it belongs to a man, but really, really, I'm female. Well, that's the kind of thing that is according to nature. Paul says it in Romans chapter 1, verses 26, that God has handed them over to degrading passions. And men and women change the natural, the nature function of husband and wife for lesbian and homosexual relationships. They see nature and they deny nature. That's the same thing with the hair. So Paul says, no, if a man has long hair, nature teaches us that it's dishonoring to him. It's shameful. If a woman has long hair, it is glorious. It's her glory. And it's given to her as a covering. That's how he bases how he reasons. So the first thing we have to accept is that Paul knows what he's talking about. This is what nature teaches. Now we know somebody like Absalom had long hair and it was very glorious hair and very beautiful hair. So when Paul says it's her glory, it can't only mean, he doesn't only mean it's for her beauty. It is for that. But men can grow long, beautiful hair, as you notice when I shake my head how it flies around. So based on nature, Paul is saying two things. When a man comes into the assembly, if he puts a hat on and prays or prophesies, he shames his head Christ. Nature teaches us that because if he has long hair, it's dishonoring. So if he prays and prophesies with long hair, 
He's dishonoring the one who made him. That's the first thing. Paul is likewise saying that if a woman comes into the assembly, and let me just say before I say this, I'm assuming what he's talking about is an assembly like ours. It's not talking about personal quiet time. Prophecy is something you give to someone else. You don't keep it to yourself. So a woman could prophesy in those days if she had her head covered. A woman could pray publicly in those days if she had her head covered. But if she doesn't have her head covered, then she is just as shameful as a Corinthian prostitute who shaved her head completely in the temple of uh, Diana. There were 1,000 prostitutes, bald as could be. And that's what Paul is referring here to. So when a woman prophesied in the church in Corinth, she had to put a head covering on, even if she had long hair. When she prayed publicly, she had to put a head covering on, even if she had long hair. Now the question is, why don't we do that today? First of all, when we get together as a church, a woman's not going to be allowed to prophesy. And second of all, women aren't asked to pray. Well, that makes it easy. You don't have to have a head covering then, right? So some people think that the head covering is just incidental. The whole point is the long hair. Well, certainly the point is the long hair. But when you just read the passage, you can tell Paul's saying you've got to put a head covering on when you pray or prophesy. So here's my take on it. I didn't think this up. I read a paper, and it's just like, you know, sometimes you read something, and it's like the light comes on. This solves my problems in the text. That, ha that has happened to me so many times over the years. I've held a position, and I hold it with all my questions about it, and then I read something, and I go, whoa, this changes everything. Somebody said something that made it all make sense to me. The book of Corinthians is written to a church who has lots of problems, and they're noted for their spiritual gifts. In fact, they're meeting revolves around the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues, and then teaching and psalm singing. We, well, I shouldn't say we, I believe the gift of prophecy ended at A.D. 70. I believe the gift of tongues, and therefore the interpretation of tongues, ended at A.D. 70, because they were signs to the Jewish people. And when the temple was destroyed, the sign was no longer needed, so it came to an end. So by A.D. 70, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 does not push on beyond that. A woman doesn't need a head covering because she's not going to speak in tongues, praying in the church. 
A woman doesn't need a head covering because she's not going to give God's message directly received from God to give to the church. She's not going to do that. But what she does need is to be distinguished from men, and men need to be distinguished from women. And this is done according to nature by, well, not just one's physical look, but by hair. Women have long hair, men have shorter hair. Now, obviously, it doesn't tell us how long hair has to be or how short hair should be. I have the right shortness. And if these two terms are comparative, which they obviously are, short and long, what's long and what's short, if this is short, Grace can just have an inch of hair, and she'll have long hair. And if you believe that, you need to go back to school, because that's not what nature teaches. Now, what the links can be, Paul doesn't tell us, nor should we get too excited about it. What we need to be able to do in a congregation is to be able to distinguish the women from the men, and women have long hair, and men have short hair. Now, that doesn't need to, we don't need to go around measuring everybody's hair. So, Paul says that nature teaches us that when a man has long hair, it's dishonoring. It's shameful. When a woman has long hair, it's her glory. And it's for a covering. Those words are probably taken from the preamble to the call to worship from Isaiah chapter 4, where Isaiah is prophesying there's going to come a day when those who survive and their filth is taken away and their bloodiness is taken away and they live in Zion in their houses and they're going to have assembly meetings, there's going to be a cloud of smoke and a flaming fire at night that overshadows. It's a covering. Your translation may say it's a defense. It's a covering. That's where Paul is taking that from. And as we read it, you notice the description is like what we, we call the Shekinah glory that followed Israel. This big cloud you could see in the day, and if it was moving, they followed it. And at night, it was a fire that you could see. And if it moved at night, you followed it. Otherwise, it was hovering over the tabernacle. So Paul says, picking up on this language, that a woman's hair is a glory and a covering. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 12. Verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, 
but she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. Now, Paul is telling us that if a woman in his day were going to pray or prophesy, speak in tongues or prophesy in the assembly meeting, things that come directly from God, she needed to put a covering on her head. Your Bibles will say a symbol. That's probably correct. This covering symbolized that she's under authority. She's under a husband's headship, and she's not going to make an idiot of him. But that's what hair is also. It's a covering. It's like crowning somebody. Now, Solomon in Proverbs transforms this woman who is an excellent woman. Some of your translations may say virtuous woman. It's the woman of Proverbs 31 that no woman under the sun could ever be. It's the woman of Proverbs 31 is somebody very wealthy, maybe the queen who could do a lot of those things. Most people couldn't do all of them. Nevertheless, there is a category of an excellent woman. And the paradigm is given to us in Proverbs 31. And this excellent woman in Proverbs 31 has a, white, uh, a husband who's known in the gates where the elders meet, the place where judgment takes place. In other words, and this woman who has long hair that is her glory and her covering, who is an excellent wife, has become the crown of her husband to rule in the gate. Now, how do you get there? You get there like this. It's not right for the man to cover his head since he's made in the image and the glory of God. And, and of course, you know this by, by manners. If we're in a gathering that's outdoors, like a picnic or something down at Town Lake, like the Awana picnic, and uh, a lot of men are wearing hats, when we pray, we take them off because we're honoring Christ. It's manners. Then we put them back on. When it comes to church time, men are not to wear hats into the assembly because we're meeting with the Lord, and he says men are made in the image and glory of Christ. Now, is not a woman the image of God? Of course. We know that from Genesis 1. But Paul is talking about an order that takes place. God made six days of creation. And after he's done with each day, well, not quite, he says, God saw, that is, he looked and he evaluated, and it was good. It was good. Then on the sixth day, he created animals, the land beasts and the domestic animals and so forth. And then he created man. And then he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, God could have created men and women at the same time, but he did it in an order to show something. 
So God created Adam, and then he made a garden. He brought man into, Adam into the garden, and he said to Adam, okay, this is what you're going to do. So he's been given his marching orders by God. There he is in the garden. Then God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The word suitable for him is just a two-letter Hebrew word that means opposite but corresponding to. And you can see how the male and the female body are opposite corresponding to. They fit together. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So he makes Adam. Oh, it's not good. And so he takes a part of Adam and he fashions that part into a woman and brings her to Adam. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, that's in chapter 2. But chapter 2 is a second creation story that focuses on Adam and Eve. The first creation story ends, uh, uh, the six-day creation ends in chapter 1. And God looked at what he had done. And this is at the end of making Eve. It's good, it's good, it's good. Now, it's very good. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. And when men say, other than the gift of singleness, it is good for men to be alone, the Roman Catholic Church, it is a lie because God said it's not. So, Paul sees a woman and he says, okay, God made her for a man. God made the man for himself, for the garden, and then he made the woman. So, you have the man who's focused on the garden and you have the woman who's the glory of the man. She's focused on the man. And that's the way... Males and females are made. Now, sin's come along, and of course, it's thrown some uh, monkey wrenches into the works. But this is what it means to be male. It means to be oriented to the task God's given them. And this is what it means to be female. It means to be oriented to the man God's given them too. And when you look at Genesis, you can see what Eve is up to. She's just as brainy as Adam. Brains aren't the issue. She's got plenty of emotions. So does Adam. It's not an issue of emotions. No, it's an issue of fulfilling the grand creative command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. How are you going to conquer the whole earth? Well, you start with Adam and Eve and you fill it up with people and people cover the whole thing and then they have it conquered. Now, the command is to go into all the world and make nations disciples. How are you going to do it? Well, first of all, you're going to have Christian families that expand and expand and expand by generation so you're covering floating all over the globe doing what you're tending a garden but it's a human garden 
to bring them to Christ. And the way they come to Christ, well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, no doubt. Generally speaking, somebody has to hear the word of God to come to faith. And if you have families all stretched out all over the globe that are Adam and Eve families full of kids that grow up and get married and do the same thing, pretty soon you've got the earth covered so that you can be heard. But not only can you be heard, you can be seen. And Christian families can be seen in two ways. They can be seen looking like the world or they can be seen looking like what a Christian family should look like. So God made Adam into what he wanted him to be. He's the image and the glory of God. Now, we could play with that, but we're going to run out of time, so we're not going to play with it. But the woman is the glory of the man. What does that mean? Well, up at the beginning of the chapter, the man is the head of the woman. So how a man lives and operates and teaches turns his wife into what she becomes. He can turn out a glorious woman Obviously, God's at work, too. Or he can make her into something more like his sinful self. What he wants is to show off his woman. And people look at her and they say, wow. And Proverbs says, she's a crown on her husband's head. He has authority. He has the ability to sit in the gate because he's known through his wife. The scriptures are pretty clear about what that godly woman is to be. But you see the church doesn't buy it anymore. The scriptures are pretty clear about what that godly man should be, but the church doesn't buy it anymore. The church is forgotten. We're in a battle. And the troops are created from within the church. So, women have long hair. That is their glory. It's a picture of the fact that they belong to a man, and this glory is authority on their head. They don't have to be timid. They take charge. What we want to be is the crown on Jesus' head as a church. So you think of Ephesians 
chapter 1, and Paul prays. And he has three points to his prayer. The last point is that men and women would understand the power. And then the power is described in raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at the right hand above all authority and power. And And he's made Jesus head over the church. And the church is called the fullness of him who fills all in all. Church is this glorious crown. How did it get to be that way? Because of the filling of Christ. A wife is to be a glorious crown to her husband. She is his glory. Now, of course, you don't hide glory. You show it off. So what does that look like? Well, we know God shows the church off because Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that as they see your good works and glorify God. He's not trying to hide the church, squinch them down, push them back. No, he wants to show off his crown. So should every man want to show off his crown. That is, His wife has become what? Light from the husband. Well, from Christ, but from the husband. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 describes that. Paul is talking about prayer in 1 Timothy 2 and how we're to pray and and, uh, petition and give thanks for all men. For God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and repentance. And then he goes on to apply it. Now, what you make of it, and there are different, different, people have some different ideas. I I don't want to get into the different ideas. I just want to point out two observations. When it comes to application, he says, I want the men to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. He doesn't say that to the women. That doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't want the women to pray. Obviously, all people should pray. There are all kinds of commands to pray. But now we're talking about in the meeting place, what does he want? Well, what he says is, I want the men to pray. But what he says of the women is what? Well, I want them to be adorned modestly, you know, not costly garments and the braiding of the hair and gold but modestly and discreetly as befits women who make a claim to godliness. And I want them to be known by their good works. The woman of Proverbs 31, people are asking that man, where did you come up with that woman? How did you get her? Because you read the chapter, she's known by what she does. And what's it oriented around? Tell me. The family. It's oriented around the... We've forgotten that in the church today. And we can't wonder why the culture is slipping away. Because the church 
isn't in the battle. What we want is the American dream. Instead of saying, oh yeah, I want a wife who's just full of good works, who grows in. And when people say, Craig, how did you get that grace? Well, one could only say, only by grace, right? Ha, ha, ha. But it's true. I know how my wife's known. She's known by her good works. And we want to be the light of the world and we want to shine our candle before men and not hide it under a bushel. So we pray that you would do a work in our families and in our church so that we are noted, noted by people for being those crazy people who love the family who love their wives, whose families do great works for Christ. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.